I have in my possession a book entitled Dear Pastor. It's a collection of letters that preteens wrote to their pastors. I'd like to share four of those letters with you this morning, the contents of those letters. They're one-liners, pretty much. The first is from Thomas from Smithtown. He says, Dear Pastor, everyone is happy after your sermon because they know you are finished. (laughs) That's good. I'm not sure how I feel about that one. Another one is from Arnold from Nashville. He said, Dear Pastor, I know that God loves everyone, but He's never met my sister. (laughs) The third one is from Roger of East Hampton. And Roger wrote, Dear Pastor, I'm very religious. I never do anything bad on Sunday. (laughs) Well, in writing that to his pastor, Roger was in a sense talking about what might be described as nominal Christianity. Christianity, which has the name, has the guise of the name Christian. But really underneath, it's hollow. There's nothing to it. In our history as Americans, sometime around the close of World War II, There was this development that was reactionary. It was a good development in some ways, and really it dates back in its formation to the early 20th century. It's known as fundamentalism. And by the way, I want to go on record today, so I won't be misunderstood in anything I say this morning at this point. I am a fundamentalist. I believe that every word in Scripture is God-breathed. Not just the ideas, but the words themselves. Why? Well, ideas are communicated in words, I think. I think that's the way it works. In all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But what happened at the same time in post-World War II America... There was a strong push within certain circles of so-called Christianity that was very liberal. And the term they best, those spokespeople for liberal theology, the term they preferred when they spoke about Jesus, they called him the teacher. Now, he is a teacher. That's the way he describes himself in the book of John 13. I am your Lord and teacher. He says, and that's the way they viewed him. He was their rabbi, and certainly he still fulfills that beautiful role in our lives to teach us. But evangelical believers, people who believe in the Word of God as the guide for matters of faith and practice, they shied away from emphasizing the teaching role of Jesus and emphasized his saving role in His divinity and in His full humanity combined into one person, the Incarnation. And certainly that is a right emphasis, but it's not the only emphasis. Because when we read Paul, for instance, who is often accused of really not emphasizing the ethical side 
of the Christian faith. I can't, for the life of me, understand why anyone would draw that conclusion. I know the conclusion is based upon his heavy emphasis on the fact that we are made right with God through faith, by the grace of God. That is the gospel, isn't it? But the way in which he introduces, for instance, the book of Romans. In Romans 1.5, he says, Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have been given apostleship to bring about the, listen carefully, the obedience of faith for His namesake. We are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's an inevitability when you really submit yourself to Christ and you give Him your life knowing that you have nothing to offer. It's all His doing. But when we submit and surrender to the Lord, we trust in Him with all our heart. The result is, He comes to indwell us by His Spirit. And God says in His Word in the book of Philippians, I'm confident that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I take so much comfort in that. Having lived so long as a follower of Christ and sometimes waking up in the morning and wondering, have I made any progress at all in Christ's likeness? Well, the answer is yes. But the Holy Spirit works in us and He keeps moving us along. Sometimes at what is seemingly a snail's pace, sometimes it's so imperceptible. But we know the promise of God in the new covenant, the covenant of the grace that I will put my Spirit in you and move you to be careful to obey me. It's His work. He sanctifies us. The Spirit of God sanctifies us by the truth. He moves in our hearts to make us want to be in a place like this on a day like this. He makes us want to open the book and read it. He makes us want to pray. Every stimulus to do anything that is contrary to my selfishness, we cannot take credit for it. It's all the Spirit's doing. But we have to respond to what He does in our lives. And He keeps working in our lives. Nominal Christianity is a Christianity that the Bible really knows nothing of. We're going to see the Characteristics of it in just a moment from the book of Mark, as opposed to normal Christianity. What is the Christian life really to look like in me and in you? We're going to see that, see it contrasted in one passage of Scripture in the Gospel of Mark. Well, the last letter, I didn't forget it. It may have seemed like I did. I didn't forget it. This is from Rosemarie of Laramie. She's the only girl in the four. She got it. And this is what she said. Pastor, I have been a Christian almost all my life. And I always try to do the right thing even when nobody's looking. You see, nominal Christianity is window dressing. And let me pause here just a moment. One of my favorite writers, a man who's influenced me even though I never met him, his name is Dallas Willard. In one of his books, he writes this. He says, 
American Christianity has become wall-to-wall non-discipled. It is because we haven't taught the whole gospel. And this young lady understood that the normal Christian life is consistent. It's not perfect. What about Paul? Did Paul reach perfection before he left this earth? Now, we don't know for sure, but it's doubtful because late in his life, when he was about my age, he's about to die, and he writes the letter to the Philippians, and you recall perhaps what he said. He says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He keeps moving us. The Lord keeps moving us. Aren't you grateful for that? And we fall, and what happens? We get up again with His help. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that the righteous falls seven times and gets up. Every time you know the number seven, it's the number of perfection. It means there's no end to our getting up. Think about the contrast between Judas. He was nominally a follower of the Lord, wasn't he? He was the one who carried the checkbook for the apostles. What about Peter? Peter failed the Lord miserably. But they had different outcomes in their lives. Peter was a real deal. Judas wasn't. Peter failed miserably. In some ways, if we did not have the full story, it would seem he failed even more than Judas because he denied Christ. But nevertheless, you can be a leader in the pack of religion and not be a true follower of Christ, a normal Christian. Well, let's get to the text here before time runs out in Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 38. Nominal Christianity seeks the praise of men. In contrast, normal Christianity seeks the praise of God. There's a big difference. And let's see the cause of nominal Christianity is misplaced commitment. It's commitment to myself and to glorifying me and making an impression upon others, be it ever so subtly, to try to get people to be impressed with me. That's nominal Christianity. The characteristics in this text we're going to see as we work our way through begin with this characteristic. It's the characteristic of pretension. Look at verse 38. And in Jesus' teaching, He was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. That's pretension, isn't it? You'll see just how pretentious their manner of bearing was. They wore a different kind of clothing that set them apart. The rank-and-file Jew in Israel wore very colorful clothing. And I like colorful clothing. But they wore white gowns, robes, that reached all the way to the ground with tassels all around the bottom. And this made mobility slow. And that fit their emphasis. They could walk very slowly and they took their time as they sauntered through public places and went into the synagogue so the people could really see them. After all, it was all about them. And you and I, if we are people who are all about window dressing, if we're about 
that which can be seen by people, then we're a lot like Roger. We compartmentalize our faith. We reserve it for one day a week or a part of a week rather than understanding that this calling to be a follower of Jesus is not a part-time thing. It's an every day, every hour, every moment kind of life. And it's not confining. If you are unaware of this, please understand, it's the most free life anyone can ever live because it's based on the power of Christ and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here they are, walking in their long robes. If you'll jump down to verse 41, I know we haven't read that whole verse, but this is part of their pretension. The last sentence says, Many rich people were putting in large sums into the treasury at the temple. Now, the treasury, there were 13 receptacles. They were shaped like trumpets. And people would bring their offerings there. And when the rich folks showed up, they reduced their offering into as many coins as possible. Many times they would hire trumpeters to let people know they were coming to draw attention to them. And then they would, boom, what would they do? Throw their money in, making a big noise with all that they gave. If you look at the last part of verse 40, it says, For appearance sake they offer long prayers. That's pretentious, isn't it? It's also pious. And this is another feature of nominal Christianity. It's pretentious and it's also pious. Jesus has much more to say. We don't have time to look at this. But if you're interested, go to Matthew chapter 6. The first half talks about beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be seen or noticed by men. We're doing this, if we're doing anything right, this life that Christ has given us, we have an audience of one. And we do it for you, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for doing it otherwise. Another and final characteristic is it's for prestige. Going back in verse 38, the last part of verse 38, beware of the scribes who like respectful greetings in the marketplaces. It was the responsibility according to the rabbinical law when a scribe, who typically was a Pharisee, someone who earned his living by his own hand, he was a working class individual, he prided himself in not depending on others, although what we know in this passage that they had a way of loopholing that because they devoured widows' houses. Widows who admired them as men who knew the Torah, they knew the law, and consequently, those widows who were poor in most cases would subsidize their lifestyle. And also, there were patrons within the Jewish community of Jerusalem and around the world, really, wherever there were Jewish communities, who revered these scribes, and they would supplement their income. They loved having the company and being seen with these holy men. And so, they liked these respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and people were required, if they weren't working in a craft, to stand up. That would turn your head, wouldn't it? If someone just starts stands up because you walk into the room, standing ovation every time you go to the marketplace. And the chief seats in the synagogues. The synagogue 
would have a place at the front, a container of the Torah, the Word of God, the Holy Scrolls. And the rabbi, the teacher, the scribe of each synagogue would have his seat put right in front of the Torah so he could see everybody, but more importantly, so he could be seen by everybody. You see that it was a place of prestige, it was a place of pretension, but also it fed the egos of these nominal followers of God. Let's read just a little further. In verse 39, in the places of honor at banquets. You might say that there was a possibility of having a rent a rabbi to come to your party. Because that dignified the party and the rabbis, the scribes, were held in such high regard. It was nice to have a token religious person there in the banquet hall. And look at what the scripture says about what is the outcome of the lives of those who have nominal commitment. Verse 40 says, these will receive greater condemnation. Jesus has his sternest words for hypocrites. Let me stop here a minute too. There's a hypocrite in me, and there's probably one in you too. I know my heart. I know the tendencies of my heart. I know that I have the ever-present possibility and sometimes the strong desire to go astray. It's not something that I am proud of at all. I'm just being frank with you. But the good news is, if we know the Lord, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If you know the Lord, your sin will bother you. It will trouble you. And that's the Holy Spirit, who one person describes as the one who comforts the uncomfortable and disturbs the comfortable. He disturbs us in our complacency in our sin. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. And not only does He move us in the direction of greater obedience, but He convicts us of our sin so as to move us in that direction. But those who resort to nominal Christianity, it's bad news. They will have a greater condemnation, the Bible says. Jesus says this. Now let's look at normal Christianity. We have a beautiful example of this. It's the Spirit's work that He would put these little episodes side by side in the Scripture. Verse 41, And He sat down, that is Jesus, opposite the treasury, this is at the temple, and began observing how the multitude, there was a ton of people coming, putting their money into the treasury, We saw how many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came. And I can only envision, I don't know for sure, my guess is that she was a little embarrassed that she had so little to give. She might have felt dwarfed, not just physically, but also spiritually by all these wealthy people who had bags of money they were bringing to give. So, Put yourself in her shoes. She came and she put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Now, think about this for a moment. Would you think ill of her if she just put in half of what she had? Probably not. 
There aren't many of us who have given 50% of all we had. And you say, how do we know that that was 50%? Well, just wait a minute. We'll see. Verse 43, And calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. It was the smallest gift on the surface of things. But it was more than all the others put together. May I tell you a story out of the history of this church that only a few people here perhaps know. We were building the Christian Life Center. And we have as part of our DNA in this church that we were led by the Lord 21 years ago to make a commitment to Him that we would never borrow money again. And by God's grace, He's enabled us to follow that commitment which we made, and we expect Him to do it 21 more years and beyond. Because He's our provider. We said we're not going to be beholden to any human institution to give us the money to build a building. Well, we were creeping up on the deadline for the final payment. That's a big building. That's an expensive building. Wouldn't you agree? I don't know how much it would be today. Probably two or three million dollars. But we were lacking in money. We had two months to bring it to the church to give it for that purpose. And I was beginning to get a little nervous. And I told the people it was the first Sunday in December of 1999. We had until the first of March. And I told the people, I said, look, a few things are going to happen. Either I'm going to get fired because I've taken you into this building program and we don't have the money. Or the Lord is going to give us the money. And He's going to do it through us. There was no hard, high-pressure sale. It was just stating the facts and Encourage the people to give. That week, that week, we received a call here from a man in our church. And he said, last night my wife and I were discussing how much the Lord wanted us to give. And so we, I looked at my wife and I called her name and I said, what do you believe the Lord wants us to give? They'd already been talking about it. And she said, $50,000. That's stunning to me. $50,000. Amazing. And he said, what do you think the Lord wants us to give today? She said, 100000 Went from fifty to a hundred because they had been in a meeting where another member of our church had asked for prayer for our church. It was a, an ecumenical meeting of believers from all over town. And he said, please pray for our church. And so this man called the office said, I want to bring a $100,000 check by. I hope that's okay. Of course. <laughs> I didn't take the call, but it was great to hear about it. Well, he told his best friend, who's a member of our church, at a Bible study they went to the day after that, he told him, he said, if you're going to give to this building thing, you need to do it. They had that kind of relationship. He didn't tell him how much he had given. And so that man came promptly from the Bible study to the church office and wrote a check for 50000 So there's $150,000. Wow. I was really beginning to get excited because I was seeing the hand of God in all that. That's amazing, isn't it? Then I had been invited by a new family in our church, the Glasses. Dr. Glass is deceased now. And they were new to our church. They'd moved here from another part of the country. And he said, my wife just cashed in her annuity. And we were wondering if you would mind if we designated the tithe from the annuity to the building fund. I said, 
whatever the Lord leads you to do. And I meant that. It was $12,000. So in a matter of days, $162,000 of almost a $300,000 debt was in hand. And I was so thrilled that God was answering our prayers in the church. When I came back from that visit to the family, I noticed my mail had come and I sorted it out. Remember, it's December. I sorted it out and I put that which appeared to be church-related, work-related, one pile, and then any personal things. I thought I saw a thing or two that might be a Christmas card. So I went through the business part and then I turned to the other. And when I picked up the smaller envelope, I noticed the return address, and it was from a woman named Adeline Dewey. She's with the Lord now. Sweet lady from Chicago. Had moved here to live here because her son and daughter-in-law and grandson live here. And I opened the letter, and I knew immediately it wasn't a Christmas card. It didn't look like And when I opened the card, a check fell out. I first read the contents of the letter, and this is the gist of it. The letter said this, I wish I had more to give to the building fund, but I'm living on my husband's Social Security. Then I opened the check, and it was $500. 500 compared to 10000 it's not comparable, really, is it? 500 to 50000 peanuts. 500 to 100000 nothing. And I thought, I wonder when she wrote the check. And then I looked, and it was written on Monday before the Lord moved in the hearts of this couple, and they were so responsive to the Lord and gave that fabulous gift. And then moved in the heart of their friend the next day. He gave a fabulous gift. And the family who are new to our church, fabulous. And thank God for their obedience to the Lord. Thank God. But this was a widow's might in my mind. And... That dear sister was a lot like this woman in the story. Probably not to the degree that she was, because let's go ahead and read 44 before time runs out. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Let's stop here just a moment. That little phrase at the end, all she had To live on. All she owned, all she had to live on. Here's the literal translation. You'll hear English words which come directly from these words which are in Greek. The first word is holon. You hear the word whole with a W-H-O-L-E? Holon. And then the word for all she had is a word which sounds like this. Bios or bios, it's the prefix to biology, it's the word bios, is the word which is used in Greek to describe physical life. All her material means, she gave it all, all she had to live on. She didn't know where her next meal was coming from, but she knew whom she trusted. She was all in, wasn't she? She was a normal follower of God. That's normality. It's to give it all. Everything. 
That doesn't mean you're to empty your bank account. What it means is you're to give the Lord full control of your life. And this is what happens when you do. It affects every area of our lives. This is what God has called us to be. His disciples. That we are to deny ourselves, take up our crosses daily, and follow Jesus. That's what normal Christianity looks like. It's not about seeking the praise of men. It's seeking the praise of God. And we're called to this. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, this is your calling. And this is my calling. It's not simply something for an elite group of believers. It's the supposed to be normal for us. So my question for you, and the Lord's been asking me this question since I've been preparing the message and delivering the message, are you all in? Is your life really mine? It is His, whether I acknowledge it or not. The Bible says, do you not know that your body is the, holy, is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? You've been bought with a price. You are not your own. I'm not my own. I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. And I love Him. And I want to serve Him. Not to earn any credit from Him, but just because I am so grateful for who He is. And I love Him as my Lord, not just my Savior. Jack Parr, some of you are old enough to remember his name. It means nothing to many of you, and that's really beside the point. He was the forerunner of Johnny Carson and Jay Leno. If you don't know who Johnny Carson is, it's hard to believe nobody would know who Johnny Carson is, but I'm sure there are a lot of you don't. Late night scene. and He was talking about Albert Schweitzer. Some of you know the name Schweitzer. He had four earned doctorates before the age of 30, one in music, one in medicine, one in theology, and one in philosophy. Four earned PhDs in his respective fields. He went to Africa to be a missionary. And Schweitzer, who was not a conservative follower of Christ by any means, he was no fundamentalist for sure, but he would take third class on the train when he would ride the train from place to place on his missionary journeys. And he was asked one time, Dr. Schweitzer, why do you always choose to ride third class? And he's paused a moment, then he said, because there is no fourth class. That's what he said. (laughs) He was seeking to serve the Lord among the least of them. was the point. And then Jack Parr said, I'd like to be like Schweitzer if I could commute. In other words, I would like to reserve a little bit for me. And when we understand what Christ has done for us, what price He has paid, how He gave His life and came under the wrath of God the Father for us, for all of our sin, not just some of it, all of it, it has an impact on our hearts. And we want to be men and women who have presented our bodies as living sacrifices to God, which is our reasonable act of worship. You know what worship is? It's not what we do here. This is just a very small slice. It's important, but it's very small. 
compared to the rest of our week. We spend an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes here. The rest of the week, we're not to compartmentalize our faith. We're to walk with the Lord every day throughout the day. And when we deviate from following Him, we should be quick to confess our sin, repent of it, and get back with our eyes trained on Him and follow Him. Would you bow your heads for just a moment? Which category would you say you find yourself in? Nominal Christianity? Seeking the praise of others? Or normal Christianity? Seeking the glory of God? Giving all you are to the Lord? If you sense the Lord calling you to Give Him all you are. Would you just pray to Him right now and tell Him you don't want to hold back anything from Him. You're giving Him all you are and trusting Him to help you to grow more like Him all the time. We do thank You, Lord for Your grace, for Your holiness, for Your mercy, for Your discipline, for Your love. And Lord, we want to be a church that is not the typical American church. We want to be a church that's centered in Christ, taught by the Spirit through the Word of God who put shoe leather to our faith. We obey what You say, Lord, about how we're to relate to each other and how we're to relate to the world and how we're to relate to our enemies. Help us to be this kind of church, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.